Um, today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 10. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, put it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is the reading of God's word. So if you've been following us, we're here currently in this series on uh, discipleship. And um, I just want to remind you where we're going with this. We started it last week, but we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. That's what a disciple does, right? That's what one of the roles of the church is, or actually responsibilities of the church is to do, is to make disciples. And a disciple, we define that as simply someone who follows Jesus. But when we talk about discipleship, oftentimes we think about what I do uh, as a disciple, what I need to do, what I have to do as an individual. And what I'm trying to do is to shift our focus off the individual and look and see that there is a communal aspect to following Jesus and to making disciples. And that's where we're going with this. And I wanted to focus on the latter part of 18, but I decided to just look at the whole chapter because the whole chapter leads up to what's going to be very difficult to talk about later in verses 15 to verse 20. And that's what we're looking at. And so if you want to summarize it this way, all of chapter 18 is Jesus' attempt to get at two very important issues in the life of the church. And that is this. First, what is the character of a person who belongs to the kingdom of God? And secondly, how does a person who is part of the kingdom of God or part of the church relate to others who are also part of the church? Okay, that's what he's answering in this whole chapter pretty much. And last week in verses 1 through 6, we saw that uh, the character of the kingdom, the thing that he stresses is humility, right? The, the, uh, the, the disciples are talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom, who's the best. Jesus brings this little child as an example, an illustration, and he says, you need to be like this. This is great in God's kingdom. And so humility, the character of a child, and the status of a child in Jesus' culture is essential to the aspect of being part of the church. And it's not only uh, being part of the church, it's also the way you get into the church. It's through humility, right? And thirdly, we said, it's also the way people live in his kingdom, live in the church with humility, all right? Let's just follow me along, because what Jesus is saying here basically last week was this. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be humble. But second thing, if you're going to be my disciple, the thing, the thing that he brings out is this. You've got to care about your fellow disciples more than you care about yourself. 
You've got to be humble, but you've got to care about others. And the thing is, the irony is that those two are not disconnected. They're actually related. Being humble doesn't mean you have a permanent inferiority complex. Humility doesn't mean that you're that person that hangs their head low and walks around with a dark cloud over your head saying, I'm no good, I'm no good. That's not what humility is. But the thing about humble people is this, that they never stop to think about how great they are. They never stop to think about their personal greatness. They're not thinking about themselves so much. There's a self-forgetfulness that we talked about last, last Sunday. We quoted C.S. Lewis that he says this, Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself. You're not thinking less of yourself. You're just thinking of yourself a little less. Why? Because humble people tend to, about, tend to think about others. Tend to think about others. You're thinking of yourself less because you're thinking about others. And so in verses 5 and 6, he says, one of the ways that you see this kind of humility come out in people is in their attitude towards others. Okay? So this part of the chapter, their concern is, is not just to, you got to be like a child, right? But it's also to have concern for other people around you that are also like this child. People who, whether by the world or by you, consider unimportant. To have concern for those around you who are like that child, people who are by the world marginalized or by you marginalized. People who, whether it's the world or you, are considered not so great, not so powerful. People who you consider the least in your life. And it's a concern and care for those kind of people that humble people have that shows that kind of humility because they're not thinking themselves so much better than those. Okay? And so they're arguing about here who is great in, in verses 1 and 2 in the beginning of this chapter. And it tells you to Jesus, it says, they haven't learned this kind of humility because they're talking about each other. They're talking about themselves. Who could be greater? And they care more about themselves than they care about others. That was the problem. Okay? So Jesus brings up this whole matter of our responsibility in regards to each other. Now, listen carefully. If you're a Christian today, um, hopefully that means that you have some kind of concern um, for your own holiness, for the way you live, for how you're living, okay, personally. But have you ever stopped to think about how you're living might affect the lives of others you come in contact with? That how you're following Jesus might affect others and their following of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? This is going to be a hard um, sermon because the words, if you just listen to Caleb read it, there's some hard words here. There's some graphic words here. This, I, I, you know, I, I can't soften this down because I think when Jesus says this, I kind of imagine him being pretty forceful. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. Three Ps to think about. Three Ps. Okay, P-P-P. Okay. There, there's a peril or danger. Uh, there's a principle. And there's prevention. Okay. There's a peril, there's a principle, and there's prevention. He 
He's talking about humility. He's talking then about people who are humble, who care about those around him, other people's following Jesus Christ. And now he gets into the nitty-gritty of how we relate. There's a peril, there's a principle, and there's prevention. Here's the peril. Here's the danger. It's in verse 6. Jesus says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and then to be drowned to the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Now, when you look at these verses in verse 6, there's this phrase that Paul, not Paul, but Jesus uses. Woe to the one, or he says, whoever causes one of these people to sin. The phrase cause to sin is repeated three times in our passage today. Verse 6, it's in verse 8, and in verse 9. And in the English, it says cause to sin. But in the Greek, it's just one word. It's scandalon. And scandalon in the Greek is, is, is a lot more general than making someone or causing someone to sin. Scandalon literally means stumbling block. It means you trip up, to trip up, okay? So the English version says, translates that as cause to sin. But really, scandalon is anything that gets in the way of effective discipleship. Anything that gets in the way of following Jesus is a scandalon. It is something that leads someone away from their allegiance to God. A stumbling block is an obstacle. It's an obstacle to faith. And sometimes that's a sin, but sometimes it's not a sin. It's a good thing, but still, it's an obstacle to your faith. So here's the, here's the danger. Here's the peril. Here's the threat. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones, whoever causes them to stumble... It would be better for him to hang a stone around his neck and drown. I, it's, it's, here's a, here's a, I, I don't know how to do this. This is Jesus talking, okay? This, think about the imagery here. If you're going to be a stumbling block, a hindrance to someone else's growing and following Jesus Christ, just die. That, that's what he seems to be saying. And the imagery that he uses is pretty scary. This millstone is not just a little rock. It's a huge stone weighing tons. Okay? And, and he's saying you take a huge stone that weighs tons, hang it around your neck, and literally in the Greek, it means that you take yourself out to the farthest open sea and you just let yourself drop to the ground. Jews didn't drown people for any crime. It was horrible. It was an unimaginable punishment to be drowned all alone with a big rock around your neck in some far-off region of the ocean. Jews didn't do that. The Romans did. But it was scary. And I think what Jesus is really doing, he's, he's really coming strong here. He's coming off strong. He's saying this. You're better off dead than alive if you're going to stumble someone else or worse, cause them to sin. And immediately I think we start to see that the point here is God isn't just concerned that, that we don't sin, that we don't do anything wrong, or that we don't stumble. He's also concerned that we don't cause others 
to stumble, others even to sin. See, how you treat others. And so he's harsh. If you're going to be like this, drown. Now the question is why? I mean, why is he so harsh? Why, why, why is it like this? That's the peril. Um, the principle, because here's the principle, the second P. And it comes to us in verse 5. And this sets up everything. He says in verse 5, Whoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. Uh, the word whoever is anybody. Anybody that receive. The word receive means to receive as a guest, to welcome, to treat with kindness and love. In other words, he says in verse 5, If you embrace one who belongs to Jesus Christ... When you welcome them as your guests, when you treat them with care and protection and kindness and with love, you are doing that to Jesus. You're doing it to me. When you receive his people, verse 5, you're receiving him. You know, every Sunday when we do the greetings and we make time to greet one another and we read that passage, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And so when you go to welcome someone, someone maybe you don't even know, when you do that, what Jesus is saying, is, you're doing it to me. Now how could Jesus say this? Because the principle here is that there is a relationship that Jesus thinks he has with those he loves. And it's a relationship that is so close and so tight and so intimate, he calls that a union. So close it is that when you do it to them, when you say it to them, when you act like it to them, he says, you're doing it to me. Remember in the passage in Matthew chapter 25, he's talking about the sheep and the goats, and Jesus says to them, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and see you thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And Jesus will respond, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see the principle here? There's a relationship that Jesus has with his fellow disciples. The only relationship, human relationship I can think of is marriage. Did you know this? Marriage is a union. It's a union. That's why when you get married, we declare you husband and wife. You are now one. You're one. You might not think you're one. You might think you're an individual and you're just living with another individual. But according to the Bible, you're one. Okay? And what that means is this. If someone hurts your spouse... It's personal. When your spouse is going through something hard, you feel that. When, when someone offends your spouse, you feel offended. Why? Because of the nature of the relationship. You're one. And if you never felt this for your spouse, if you never think about this for your spouse, I think there's something wrong with your relationship. And it's the same kind of idea then, the same principle that Jesus is saying, that we are one with this Jesus. We're so united, so close. 
then you do it to any one of them, he says, you're doing it to me. And it tells us something about what it means to be a Christian. We don't believe just in a system of theology and philosophy. We're united to a God. It's a relationship. We don't just, as a disciple, we don't just follow the teachings. We follow a person. It's, it's a relationship. And the point that Jesus is trying to say is how you treat God's people is how you treat Jesus Christ. However lowly, however you consider them, the believer to be the least, with kindness, with care, with protection, you give to this person to keep him from stumbling, to keep him from falling away, to keep him from sinning, is exactly how you're treating Jesus Christ. You understand this? How you treat God's people, in a sense, is a determiner of how he's going to treat you. You know, in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a nation, he says this, your people, I will bless them, and I will bless them, and I will bless you, and anyone that blesses, curses you, I will curse them. Anyone that blesses you, I will bless them. That's what he says. In, in Genesis chapter 27, verse uh, 29, it's the same thing. He says, curse be everyone that curses you. Blessed he that blesses you. How you treat God's people is a determiner of how God's going to treat you. Why? Because of the intimate nature of God's relationship to his people. Right? You follow me? That's the principle. Now think of this in the negative sense. Now look at verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, you die. Drown yourself. However you treat them, you treat me. And it determines how I treat you. Right, let, me, let me illustrate this way. Um, you know, we got a lot of kids. Sometimes... After service, all these little kids are running around, okay? Um, you know, I, normally I love kids, but let's say hypothetically that, that uh, you know, you see me down the hall with all these kids running past me, and your little kid is running past me, right? And I decide to just step my foot out there and watch them trip. And then they see the little kid tumbling all the way to the ground, right? It's like, oh, sorry about that, and I walk away. And then another happened, another kid, it's your kid again, and I see the kid running down. I say, hey, slow down. He doesn't listen, so I stick out my foot, and he trips. Boom, boom, boom. This time he's got a gash on his chin. If you were his or her parent and you saw me do that, how would you feel? I mean, some of you might think it's kind of funny. <laughs> but really, if you were a parent, how would you feel? And as a parent myself, if you hurt my daughter, or if you hurt my son, that's my family. It's personal. That's the nature of the relationship. You get upset. You get defensive. You want to strike back. And if human beings feel the same way, this way, can you imagine then how God feels for his own children? His own children. Not only are you not to sin, 
but you're not to cause others to stumble or sin. Why? Not because, you know, if you did something mean or tripped something up, you know, that it would be just mean or it would be bad. You know, the fact that you, you, know, you gossiped about someone or, or hurt someone or you, even you just ignored someone, you belittled someone, you got angry and you just yelled at someone and, you, and, you know, you stumbled someone. You don't do those, not just because, you know, that's just not a good thing to do. You don't do those. Because the person you did it to, the person you said it to, is someone else's daughter, someone else's son, someone's child. And in the church, we have to be careful because that's God's daughter. That's God's son. It's his child. And you're a stumbling block. And you're getting in the way of a holy God and his relationship with his children. That's the warning. You receive them, you receive me. But you mess with my kids, you mess with me. If you stumble them, drown. Those are harsh words. And it really, think about this. With regards to following Christ, think of the relationships you have today. If you're a father or mother today, think of your relationship with your kids. Are you encouraging them to follow? Or are you discouraging them? Are you a hindrance or are you an encouragement? Think of how you interact with your spouse, the words you say, how you say, what you do, or even just your friends. When you hang out and do things together, are you a hindrance to their following Christ or are you an encouragement? Think about how you act with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. Are you a hindrance, a stumbling block, or are you an encouragement? I don't think there's anything in between. You and I, we all influence one another, directly or indirectly. Are you positively, spiritually an encouragement, or are you a negative one? And if you're not a positive one, Jesus is saying you're a stumbling block, directly or indirectly, with your words, with your response, with how you act, the examples you set, how you treat one another, in the family of God. And if that's you, Jesus says there's this warning. And in verse 7, he says, Woe to you. Woe to you. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to drown in the depth of the sea. He's serious. It's serious. Now, there's the peril, the, the principle is the relationship we have, and that's how he sees us. Now, what's the prevention? What do we do about this? How do we control this? What's the prevention? Notice the last phrase in verse 5. Jesus says, whoever sees one such child, he's not talking literally about children anymore, but he's talking about disciples in general who have been likened to like a little child, to recognize one another as children of God. And here is, as we get closer to what I really want to talk about later on, is this. Start to recognize that as children of God, even in the church, there is a level of responsibility to each other in how we follow and grow as Christians. This is all this talk. Be careful how you treat each other. Be careful how you look at Don't stumble each other, right? Encourage them. Receive them. How we grow depends on how you interact with one another. 
particularly in our relationship to God, in our following of Jesus Christ. This, I think, what Jesus is saying. And I know some of you, we're not used to thinking like this. It's not that communal, we think. We're very individualistic. We live in a me, myself, and I culture. And some of you are going to say this. Well, you know, I don't go around seducing people into sin, right? I, I don't go around provoking people to anger and, 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 uh, and, and try and stumble them. I certainly don't go around abusing my, my liberty or set a bad example to everyone. I'm just basically doing my own thing. I, I, I'm, I'm minding my own business. And if that's you, may I suggest that you are maybe committing the biggest sin of all, the sin of omission. You're not saying what you should be saying. You're not doing what you should be doing. Yeah, you may not be causing into a stumble. You're not doing anything wrong, you think, but you're not doing what you should be doing. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, what, is, what does the author of Hebrews say with regards to a community? Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. Encourage one another all the more. And so we can't just... We can't just go with the flow. We, we can't just sit there and say, well, I'm not doing any of those things. I'm not causing anyone to sin. I'm not causing anyone to stumble. Uh, I'm not doing any of those things I shouldn't be doing. And the, the point is, maybe we need to start doing the one thing that you should be doing. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another to grow, to follow Jesus. You know, that, that's what he's talking about. And to be honest, it's too many times where you're hanging out with fellow church people and someone is sharing something that they're going through that you know in your head that that's pretty, you know, messed up, and you never say a word. You never out of love and concern and say, hey, you know what, maybe we need to pull that one back a little bit. If anything, hey, good for you. But you know in your head they're stumbling, and you feel like, well, it's not my business. It is your business. As members of the church, it is your business. You are either positive or negative influence. You're either hindrance or you're encouragement. And here's the point. Many of you think it was just my job. It's the pastor's job to do that, to talk to that person who's struggling, to, to confront this person who's not doing too well, or to confront that person who is stumbling and sinning. It's the pastor's job. It's not my job. It's not just my pastor. It's not just my job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's the church's job. It's the community's job. You and I influence, affect unintentionally, intentionally one another all the time. And Jesus is saying, how we treat one another in the kingdom of God for discipleship matters. So what's the prevention? How do we prevent ourselves from being someone who becomes a stumbling block? You know, there's a story of, of someone, a little boy, 
who uh, one night sneaks out of the house in the middle of the dead of winter because his father was already going out and his father was going to the bar. Uh, the father was an alcoholic. And so through the snow, he's taking one step after another, heading to the bar to get some drink, right? But then he hears something behind him, and he noticed his five-year-old son hopping from one footstep to the next that his father had just left, following his father. So the father turns around to the boy and says, hey, where are you going? And the son responds, I'm just following in your footsteps, Daddy. I'm just following in your footsteps. And the story goes, that's the last time the man ever took a drink. The thought of that is scary. What is the prevention? It isn't to concentrate on what you're doing with others. It's to concentrate on yourself, to deal drastically with yourself. Here's the, hard, here's the second hard saying that Jesus gives us. Verse 8, if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. Cause you to sin. That phrase, scandalon, stumble, not just sin, stumble, cut it off, throw it away, right? Then he says again in verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. This is pretty graphic, like horror movie stuff, right? It, it, and he says it's better for you to enter life with one eye than two. I mean, this is hard. This sounds crazy. But that's the point. That's the point he's trying to make. It's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. So don't take that literally. Please don't go hurting yourself literally. He's not literally telling them to chop off their limbs, but he's saying we need to get serious and take drastic measures to deal with our issues. Because our issues are not just for the sake of personal holiness, but we need to take drastic measures because it might get in the way of somebody else. It might hurt someone else. So what's Jesus saying? What do I do to prevent myself, not just from stumbling and sinning, but stumbling and cause others to sin? And the answer is very general. According to verse 8, according to verse 9, the answer is simply this. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. You know, cut it off, throw it out, gouge your eye. These are hyperbole. He's saying basically whatever it takes. In the Old Testament, God may have said, you mess with my children, you're going to die. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you cause any of mine to stumble. You need to be drastic with yourself. You got to die. You've got to die to yourself in order that, out of humility, you might live for him and for the sake of others. And this isn't easy, okay? It doesn't come naturally to us. It, it, especially in our world today, never has there been so much anger and hatred and distrust and disillusionment and division and discouragement, not just out there in the world, but also in the church. Never has it been like this. And as Christians, let's be honest, oftentimes we're not as we should be. And not only sometimes do we feel out of sync with God at times, but worse, we could bring others around us down with us, with anger or with hate, with bitterness, or just indifference to one another. And if that's us, how in the world 
Do we call ourselves God's children? And here's the answer that we need to remember. Because our Father in heaven took drastic measures, extreme measures, not hyperbole, reality, on his own son, he cut him off so that we could be brought into his family. He got thrown out to the darkest depth of death so that we are brought from darkness to light, so that we come from death to life. The father took drastic measures, not not upon us, but upon his own child, the only son that he had. He was the one who cries out on the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that you and I could cry out, Abba, Father. We're made his children because he took the judgment and condemnation for our sin, our selfishness, and he gives us forgiveness and mercy. God took the measures, not upon us, but on his own son, to make people like us, his sons and daughters. How drastic is that? How extreme is that? And I want you to know, as a father in heaven, God loved you. His children, he loves us so much. We see there is nothing he wouldn't do to save us, to protect us, to love us, and to make us his. He says this when he gives his own son to us. He says this, whatever it takes, I will make you mine. And that's why we follow him. And we seek humbly to do the same. To die to ourselves. Whatever it takes for his sake, but also for our brother and our sister's sake. We turn the table. Instead of stumbling people to sin, we want to lead them to goodness. Instead of causing them to be angry and upset, we want to cause them to be joyous and full of praise. Instead of setting an example of sin, we, we, we set an example of goodness and holiness. Instead of misusing your liberty, we use our liberty rightly so that others around us continue to grow and be nurtured. This is what we do. And this is something the church has not done well. Because you're looking me to do the hard work while you go out and hang out and do and say whatever you want to say. And you never talk about it. And you never address it and confront someone. Talk to someone. Encourage them in the right way. And oftentimes we do the opposite. We bring them down. And that's not how we ought to be. Right? We follow Christ, who took drastic measures to make us his own. And we do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your patience and grace. We thank you that we 
can pray to you and call you Father. Uh, and that means a lot. That's a relationship we are assuming. A relationship meaning that, that just as parents today, many of us, you care for us so much for your own children that you go to great lengths to protect and to save them. That relationship so close that you have said that whatever is done to one of us is done to you. We believe in a God who is not just theological, spiritual, far and removed, but we are dealing with someone who is intimately involved and close and sees us close to himself. And we pray, God, that that idea, that truth would not only encourage us individually as people who follow you, but Lord, it would encourage us to follow you by loving and serving others the way you have loved us. We don't think in these terms. Um, we don't consider ourselves ministers or shepherds of any kind. And yet, it sounds like that is what you've called us to do at some level. All of us. And so, Lord, give us grace and strength. Give us patience and mercy. Remind us again of the truths of your gospel. The amazing and crazy love that you have given to us in Christ. And call us to follow you in your footsteps by doing the same for others. The ones that we already know. The ones that we see every day. The ones that we are surrounded by all the time. Teach us what it means to love as you've loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.